welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, December 10th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Can Blockchain Make Surety Bonds Simpler? by Joe Gardiaz. Not long after Zach Mefford and Ryan Suave launched Coverage Direct in 2016, They quickly discovered a big challenge while running the West Des Moines-based independent insurance agency, how to harness technology to make it simpler and easier for customers to obtain a niche insurance product, surety bonds. On January 1st, they launched Zip Bonds, an insurance technology company focused on building an online platform aimed at improving and simplifying the process of obtaining surety bonds. We still believe the independent agency channel is the best way to buy insurance, but unfortunately, it has not kept up as well as others in the technology space, Mefford said. Zip Bonds recently joined a group of 27 national corporations in the surety industry, among them Merchants Bonding Company of West Des Moines, in a project aimed at streamlining the process of securing power of attorney authorizations for surety bonds. Organized by the Institute's Risk Stream Collaborative, the insurance industry's largest enterprise-level blockchain consortium, the Surety Bonds Power of Attorney Lab is pulling together representatives of sureties, brokers, and agents, as well as solutions providers. Traditionally, when a contractor wants to submit a bid, they must travel to City Hall, submit a bid bond or cashier's check, and jump through hoops to get the bid approved, Zip Bond's co-owner Suave said. If you miss one tiny detail, the entire bid is rejected. With this blockchain, you can't screw it up. It eliminates the potential for human error, prevents fraud, and saves time, he said. As defined by the National Association of Surety Bond Producers, a surety bond is, quote, a promise to be liable for the debt, default, or failure of another. It is a three-party contract by which one party, the surety, guarantees the performance or obligations of a second party, the principal, to a third party the obligee. There are two broad categories of surety bonds, contract surety bonds and commercial, also called miscellaneous surety bonds, end quote. Zip Bonds was bootstrap financed by its two co-owners, who before launching their agency had worked together for three years at NCMIC Group in Clive. The startup currently employs just two full-time employees, one on the contract surety side of the business and one on the commercial side. Outside of that, we've been very fortunate to partner with great people on a fractional level, Mefford said. So we have a fractional technology team that basically runs all the development for us. We're going to be looking to bring on somebody full-time in that space in 2022 and then we'll continue to utilize fractional chief marketing and chief financial officer positions, he said. 
Currently, Zip Bonds has just under 8,000 commercial surety forms in its database that enable independent agents and consumers to select, purchase, and print the surety bond they need on the commercial side. On the contract side of the market, Zip Bonds has also created a proprietary underwriting model that allows the company to pre-qualify contractors needing contract surety up to $750,000 in a much more efficient way. We're still very much in our infancy of what we're trying to create with our platform, Mefford said. We look to provide the best in-class platform for all things surety, both direct to consumer, but also a concierge service to independent agents who don't have subject matter experts in their office. So for us, if we can incorporate those things with blockchain and provide the platform that agents and consumers choose to use, that's what we consider success, he said. Merchants Bonding Company, which is the largest surety bonding carrier in Iowa and among the 10 largest carriers nationally, collaborated on the surety bond project because of the potential value it will have to the surety industry, said Brad Rasmussen, Merchants Bonding's Chief Information Officer. That's the thing about the surety industry, Rasmussen said. With so many parties involved, we all have to work collectively on some of the issues our industry faces. The power of Attorney Lab is aimed at simplifying the process to make it less error-prone, he said. The fewer times a human has to go into the system, the better. If it's done once and shared in an automated fashion, that's better. Also, there are public stores of information. So with one or two pieces of information from the client, we may be able to pre-populate the information to minimize people having to enter data, he said. The blockchain project could solve a particular business problem that all surety carriers face regarding power of attorney in terms of identifying the people who have the right to sign in that capacity through access to a central depository, Rasmussen said. With blockchain, there is much less movement of paper involved, he said. We think it's revolutionary. We think it has a lot of potential. We want to be in the lead on these technology plays, and this is one avenue where we're doing that. The thing that's nice about this is that with this many companies involved in it, the better the chance of it going forward for the entire industry. The use of technology could also help lower surety costs for clients, Rasmussen said. The more parties you have involved in a transaction, the time involved just in getting a wet ink signature, eliminating some of those, your cost does drop, he said. I think that's a byproduct of implementing some of these technology solutions to the challenges we have. Rasmussen said he anticipates implementation of the Power of Attorney project to begin a few months from now in 2022. Getting a tangible proof of concept out will be beneficial for showing the industry what's possible, Zip Bond's Mefford said. That will very likely turn into other projects that will address other specific parts of what it would take to make this a successful venture long-term, he said. It's just really hard to help people see the potential of a new technology like this without giving them some sort of tangible version of what we're trying to accomplish, 
So I think the institutes are doing a very good job of focusing specifically on one small portion of this with the overall larger perspective of whether we can figure this out and gain traction here, and we can start chipping away at all the other things that are needed to make this usable. In a related sidebar, surety bonds required under provision of $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Contractors bidding on any projects funded through the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill will be required to obtain surety bonds under a bipartisan amendment unanimously added to the bill before its passage. The Van Hollen 2354 amendment, named for Senator Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat from Maryland, received a unanimous vote of 97 to 0. The bipartisan amendment was co-sponsored by Mike Rounds, Republican from South Dakota, Mark Kelly, Democrat from Arizona, and Joni Ernst, Republican from Iowa. This 97-0 vote represents a truly bipartisan effort to provide essential protections and services necessary to support our country's immediate and future infrastructure needs, said Lee Convington, president and CEO of the Surety and Fidelity Association of America, when the amendment was passed. He added, it demonstrates the value and importance construction surety bonds play in the success of all federally financed infrastructure projects. Brad Rasmussen, Chief Information Officer of Merchants Bonding Company in West Des Moines, said his firm does expect more surety bond volume from contractors ahead, as billions of dollars in federal contracts flow across the country. And that's okay, he said. We're ready to support that. And another related sidebar, Merchants Bonding launches new division focused on small emerging contractors. Merchants Bonding Company in October announced the launch of Specialty Solutions, a new underwriting division focused on providing solutions to small and emerging contractors working to qualify for surety credit. A primary focus of Specialty Solutions will be the Surety Bond Guarantee Program offered through the U.S. Small Business Administration. Through this program, merchants will issue, monitor, and service bonds for small and diverse contractors who have the knowledge and skills necessary for success but might not yet meet all of the criteria other sureties require. At Merchants, we are experts in common-sense surety solutions, and we want to use our expertise to give a hand up to quality contractors who are working hard to build the character, capacity, and capital needed to qualify for surety credit, said Steve Dorenkamp, Vice President of Specialty Solutions. Merchants has partnered with Peter Gibbs, former director of the SBA Office of Surety Guarantees, who now leads his own agency, Foundation Surety and Insurance Solutions, in Washington, D.C. Gibbs previously worked for the SBA for 32 years. Peter is the guy who can help a small and emerging business navigate the forms, because in the surety industry, the SBA is seen as a difficult process, said Teresa Wheelage, Merchant's Chief Marketing and Communications Officer. Five years ago, you might have seen different forms in different cities' SBA offices. Under Peter, there's been a huge change in SBA to make it better, 
easier for the industry. So we're trying to help get the word out that it isn't as hard as it used to be, she said. Next, in the Fearless column, part two of a three-part series focusing on the closure of birthing units in Iowa, the factors driving that trend, and how it is changing maternal health care. 20 years of decline, Iowa's dwindling birthing units. Two communities share the experience of closing their units and how they adapted. By Sarah Bogarts. Part one looked at the overall problem. This piece explores a couple of communities that have lost a birthing unit in the past two decades, and part three will look at potential solutions. As one of the first birthing unit closures since 2000, Fairfield's story sets the scene for how a closure would require more communities, especially other rural areas, to adapt to a regional model of care in the future. The closure of Marshalltown's birthing unit in 2019 made it the largest non-metro community to shutter its unit, and it demonstrates the continued presence of regional care 20 years later. When the Fairfield Ledger, the town's local newspaper, shared the news in July 2000 that families would no longer be able to deliver their children at Jefferson County Health Center, the community wasn't aware that this closure would be just the start of a series of birthing unit shutdowns across the state in the next 20 years. Dr. Curtis Smith was the hospital's emergency department manager at the time and is currently the chief operating officer. He said when hospital leaders announced to department managers their intention to close the obstetrical unit around late 1999, the birthing unit was battling the leading cause of closures, not enough births. There were only 50 births in the unit in 1999, the ledger reported in the news story of the closure. Family practice providers performed all the deliveries, and they were relieved by the closure, Smith said, because with so few births, concerns about providing a high quality of care arose. We felt it was getting to a point where it's harder and harder to stay proficient and we didn't want to have a bad outcome for a baby or a mom. We just recognized this wasn't one of our strengths and this wasn't a direction as an older county that we needed to focus on, Smith said. For Fairfield residents, he said the closure was a shock initially. Typically, the birth of a child is a very joyous time and to be celebrated and now it's like, well, what's going to happen to the family unit, he said. Some residents expressed concern at the time and have since inquired about the possibility of bringing the unit back. At first, the hospital worried that residents may go elsewhere for other services in addition to OBGYN care. But these worries never came true, Smith said. Ed Malloy, who started serving as Fairfield's mayor in 2001, said one reason he thinks the closure did not receive more of a response was the economic activity dominating the community's attention at the time. He remembers residents voicing disappointment, but with the city's progress in developing entrepreneurship, business, and arts and culture, the closure didn't set off alarm bells. Economic development tends to dwarf some of the more singular issues that every community is facing, 
like whether they have an OBGYN unit or not, whether they have a rural hospital or not, Malloy said. With 20 years since the closure behind them, Jefferson County and its approximately 15,600 residents have settled into the model of care found in many rural Iowa counties. Being a small local hospital, using traveling providers for specialties that can't be supported full-time was standard for Jefferson County Health Center. It already offered clinics for cardiology, pulmonology, podiatry, and more. The natural way to pivot after the birthing unit closure was to add an OBGYN clinic. A nurse practitioner from nearby Ottumwa Regional Health Center specializing in obstetrics and gynecology has made once or twice weekly visits to Fairfield since the closure. The current provider has additional certifications as a nurse midwife and a women's health care nurse practitioner. When the unit closed in 2000, every southeast Iowa county touching Jefferson County had an open birthing unit. Today, Atumwas is the only one remaining, meaning families could be traveling farther to deliver. Smith said the most common options are Atumwa, Burlington, which is also located in southeast Iowa, Iowa City, or Pella. For the number of residents seeking OBGYN care, he said delivering services through local clinics that are run by traveling providers is serving as, quote, a good compromise. Iowa Department of Public Health data shows that about 30% of Jefferson County residents are 65 or older, and the birth rate gradually declined overall since 2000. Some voices still ask about bringing back the birthing unit when hospital leadership gathers community input, and Smith and his colleagues reevaluate the possibility every few years. The last evaluation was four years ago but Smith said volume remained too low to warrant a return, and he doesn't expect those numbers to change much in the future. It might not seem surprising, considering overall population growth in Jefferson County has been stagnant, declining just 1% since 2000. Josh Larrabee, Executive Director of the Fairfield Economic Development Association, said the population remaining unchanged is a sign that the county, quote, held its own in the face of rural population losses across the state, per the 2020 census. Factors that kept the population stable include strong manufacturing, finance and education sectors, and entrepreneurship opportunities, Larrabee said. Fairfield's largest single employer, Cambridge Investment Group, Inc., was founded in 1981 and has grown to employ about 900 people in Fairfield. Still, as in other rural counties, it is a continuous effort to attract and retain residents. Larrabee said recruiting physicians, providing affordable housing, and child care are challenges for the area. I believe we have to work twice as hard and be twice as creative in rural Iowa when it comes to economic development, quality of life, public-private partnerships, things that cities can do to attract and retain workforce, Larrabee said. 
we have to work twice as hard. And I see that as a good challenge because there's this movement toward the urban areas and concentration toward the urban areas, he said. On the other hand, Larrabee said there is more interest from young families to move to a smaller town like Fairfield. He said they are seeking a, quote, different pace of life. And after the pandemic, they see smaller towns as safer from a public health standpoint. By focusing on basic infrastructure like housing and a child care initiative to help restore 658 spaces that were lost, Larrabee said it is the association's goal to first solve these problems for current residents and then look toward growth in business and population. If Fairfield does start to see more young families, a conversation about bringing back the birthing unit could arise, Larrabee said, although other challenges may stand in the way. That is a fundamental service. It's as important as the school system. It's important in terms of affordable housing and child care, he said. Although fundamental, health care availability and access to a local birthing unit are not often determinations of population change. It is urbanization, rather, that's driving rural shifts, Smith said. I think it's just natural. People want to get out of a small town, he said. What we see here is, I want to go live in Des Moines. I want to live in Iowa City. I want to live in Chicago. Smaller communities are decreasing in size. I don't think it has to do with not having an OB service here, he said. Employment is the main factor determining where people choose to live. Liesl Ethington, coordinator of the Iowa Community Indicators Program, said explaining the Fairfield Economic Development Association's efforts to retain the existing population and workforce. Ethington said small and mid-sized communities should work on retaining residents, as more consolidation can create a cycle that hampers population and economic growth. Every time you've got a different industry that's experiencing this trend toward urbanization and consolidation on a larger scale, you do have consequences on the local economy that can turn around and have a feedback effect that inhibits further growth, she said. Larrabee said attracting residents is a, quote, competitive game. So Fairfield and its rural counterparts need to have a clear vision for their community and its identity and commit to it. I think there's a difference of opinion that people will just move here. And in my opinion, it is a competitive game. It is a marketing game. It's a quality of life game. And you have to work on all of these things to be attractive. In a healthy way, you want to please everybody, but you have to be clear on who you want to attract, he said. Like Fairfield, Marshalltown experienced the shock of a sudden birthing unit closure in August 2019 when the Unity Point Health Hospital announced that low volume and difficulties attracting a second OBGYN were causing the unit and the women's health clinic to close. When it came down to it, our consultants said this obstetrics unit was a service to the community that it cannot support, hospital president and CEO Jenny Friedley said in a Times Republican article. 
There was a 45% decrease in births at the hospital in the six years before the closure, with 2018 hitting a record low of just 18 births, the Times Republican reported. Moms Angie Peitig and Danny Minkle both lamented the loss of the vital service and a quality facility for the city of more than 27,000, the largest non-metro community to lose its unit since 2000. Other residents voiced their feelings and experiences on the Times Republican's Facebook page that relayed the news. One comment on the post read, quote, Whether your personal experience was good or bad, this is a huge loss for our community as a whole. End quote. Another quote, This is ridiculous. Grinnell has less deliveries than Marshalltown and they're still open. End quote. And, quote, this is why hospitals should be a municipal service. At this rate, our hospital is going to be nothing but a lobby for Des Moines, Ames, or Iowa City, end quote. While the birthing unit closure was unexpected, it wasn't the first surprise to originate from the local hospital or its OBGYN practice. The facility that is now named Unity Point Health Marshalltown was previously known as Central Iowa Healthcare, an independent hospital with more than a century of history in the area. It filed for bankruptcy, and Unity Point Health Waterloo acquired the hospital and took over operations in May 2017. The hospital closed the catheterization lab and the intensive care units in 2018 due to financial reorganizing and loss following the bankruptcy. In part, because of the hospital changes, more residents started seeking care elsewhere. Before Unity Point Health's purchase, the hospital's OBGYN care was provided by the Women's Care Group, a private office staffed by Dr. John McCarville, Dr. Richard Dowell, and several midwives. Patients had their appointments in the Women's Health Clinic located on the hospital's campus and those who were pregnant delivered in the birthing unit inside the main building. The practice kept operating when Unity Point became the owner, but changes were on the way. McCarville left the practice, leaving three midwives and one provider. Then in 2018, Dowell quit and took his patients' records with him. In December 2018, the Iowa Board of Medicine initiated an investigation and alleged several of Dowell's former patients had been unable to obtain their medical records from him, the Times Republican reported. Dowell and McCarville's practice officially closed in early fall 2018, and Unity Point decided it would start its own OBGYN clinic in the same space with the same staff. The hope was that Dowell's patients would continue coming to the clinic for services, but they needed a new physician. Enter Dr. Mary Beth Anderson, who joined the hospital staff in January 2019, coming from a private practice in Wisconsin. She said she was hired to, quote, grow and develop the OBGYN program, end quote in addition to delivering patient care at the renamed Women's Care Clinic and Birthing Center. The unit saw progress during 2019. Anderson and hospital leaders were looking for a second obstetrician and a fundraising campaign to purchase new equipment raised at least $70,000 in February, 
so the August closure was not anticipated. Anderson said, That was unexpected from the perspective of those working in labor and delivery and in the clinic because we had just been interviewing candidates. We hadn't hired the right person, but we were in the process. She said she and other hospital staff were aware that Unity Point was having a third-party study done in 2019 to determine how to, quote, allocate their resources. One of the three plans that came out of the study proposed closing obstetric services, although not everyone agreed with that idea. That was not the plan or wishes of the administration, but apparently was the wishes of those that were higher up, Anderson said. Although the closure was, quote, very upsetting for her personally, she said it was also a loss because of the great staff and patients. She thought some of the difficulty recruiting another OBGYN came from her being the only physician at the time and new hires wanting, quote, more resources and more colleagues. Anderson said, when you have a small community and you have a practice like that and you don't have a lot of partners, there's difficulty in getting enough people to cover. You have to be able to cover hospital emergencies, surgeries, and labor and delivery 24-7. And even if there's midwives, midwives can't do the role of physicians. Anderson said physicians are the most needed resource for a birthing unit. So as the costs of staffing and providing quality care increase, while the number of births and OBGYNs decrease or stagnate, especially in rural areas or smaller towns, the combination ultimately makes OBGYN services something that is easier to outsource to a nearby hospital. It may be easier to concentrate those resources, but that means other people have to travel to get them. It's not ideal as a patient, but as a system trying to provide those services, it appears as though that's a way for them to provide those resources, she said. The unit's progress abated following the decision. The two midwives who were employed at the time left for other practices, and Anderson is back at the same Wisconsin practice as before. The same adaptation period Fairfield experienced nearly 20 years earlier following its closure has been underway in Marshalltown for the last two years. The next closest delivery options for Marshalltown families now lie around an hour away in each direction in Des Moines, Ames, Waterloo, and Grinnell. Expecting parents can still find prenatal care locally. Primary Health Care has a nurse practitioner who offers a range of obstetric and gynecology services, just not delivery. And McFarland Clinic recently expanded OBGYN services to its Marshalltown location, with delivery available at Mary Greeley Medical Center in Ames. McFarland OBGYN's Dr. Bonnie Beer and Dr. Beth Suley will travel from Ames twice a month, and five midwives will rotate weekly coverage. Beer said McFarland has done outreach to Marshalltown since McCarville and Dowell's practice closed, and this expansion will give the community an established relationship with providers who can also perform deliveries. Unity Point still offers a local OBGYN care with the help of traveling providers as well. 
A group of eight midwives, some of whom used to work in Marshalltown, started rotating weekly trips to the hospital's multi-specialty clinic in January 2020. This is how Minkle, a school counselor and mom of two, has been able to receive prenatal care for her current pregnancy locally and still work with some of the midwives she knew from the birth of her first two children. She said she plans to see the midwives in Des Moines during the last few weeks of the pregnancy, and she hopes to deliver at Methodist West in West Des Moines. Both Minkle and Pytig said they feel that Marshalltown's population warrants a local delivery option for the community. Comparing this experience to her last two pregnancies, Minkle said, I definitely don't feel like the care is as effective as when everything was local but I also don't feel like we have a choice right now. Another cost of the shift is that some Marshalltown women who weren't pregnant stopped getting annual preventive exams if travel was required, Minkle said. All the local care options that have become available since the closure provide gynecology services. She said the closure and this new model of regional care seen in Marshalltown and across the state haven't made her or people she knows reconsider living in the town or having more children, but it has forced them to work within the situation and find a way to still seek care. Given the efforts Marshalltown has initiated to revitalize and develop the community, Minkle said she worries changes like the closure could hurt goals to bring more young people into the area. I do think when people are thinking about having a family that they think through this aspect and it's just something that we don't have to offer, she said. University of Iowa OBGYN Dr. Stephen Hunter said that a good adaptation to birthing unit closures is keeping some prenatal care options available locally as those appointments help identify any risks in the pregnancy and are, quote, critically important to a healthy outcome, end quote. He added that traveling providers and clinics reduce the demand for expecting parents to find time and transportation to go out of town for their prenatal care as well as for delivery. Regionalized care is already in Iowa, but Hunter said in the face of closures, small and mid-sized communities can expect it to become more prominent and require more changes. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, December 10th, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now turning to the Closer Look column, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Sarah Hopkins, owner, REMAX Precision Urban Office, by Kathy A. Bolton. Every December, Sarah Hopkins writes her goals for the coming year on a vision board. Own My Own Boutique Real Estate Firm has been included in the list for the past seven or so years. The goal won't be on her vision board this year. In October, Hopkins opened the REMAX Precision Urban Office at 3726th Avenue in Des Moines. The brokerage, located in the Highland Park, Oak Park neighborhoods, will house 10 licensed real estate brokers and has room to add 20 others. 
Hopkins finalized the purchase of the property in mid-2021 and then began renovating the building. The structure, built in 1948, was previously home to a small accounting firm and a thrift shop. I showed this space to some clients of mine, Hopkins said. When they saw it, it was horrendous. Full of black mold, crumbling ceiling, water everywhere, it was absolutely disgusting. They said there was absolutely no way they wanted it. Hopkins said she made sure her clients weren't interested in the property before pursuing buying it. I asked them, are you sure? Because I can see something really beautiful here, Hopkins said. They said, go for it because we want absolutely nothing to do with it. Hopkins said she spent more than $10,000 to get architectural drawings and engineer reports completed before going before the city's plan and zoning commission. I had to get 13 waivers to make the construction even somewhat affordable, which was already way over budget, she said. I wanted to make this work. I was determined I was going to have an office in Highland Park. My grandma lived on Holcomb Avenue. My mom grew up there. I spent my child at Aqualand, Chuck's, Highland Bakery. It's very sentimental to me. We recently caught up with Hopkins. How did you get into the real estate business? After I graduated from college, I moved to England. I lived there for four years, and I worked for a magazine. My husband and I ended up selling everything we owned, went and traveled the world, and then came back to Des Moines. Everything during our travels was on a shoestring budget. We forgot to budget for once we got back home because we thought we'd get jobs right away. Well, when we got here, it was January 2009 and in the middle of a recession. We were living in my parents' basement, and I went on a job interview after job interview and kept getting rejected. It was a very depressing time. I thought I was this cool international sales rep who would quickly get a job. I just totally got knocked down to earth. My mom, real estate agent Linda Westergaard, was fortunate enough that her business wasn't completely crashed with the recession, and she said to me one day, well, why don't you get licensed and help me out until you can find something? I very begrudgingly got licensed and then ended up totally loving it. Within about three years, I was selling more than her. What did she think about that? It wasn't always an ongoing joke. She knew it didn't make sense for me to stay with her, so I went off on my own and started my own team. Now, 12 years later, she's on my team. Growing up, did you want to go into real estate sales? No, I did not want to get into real estate. You see your parents do it, and you see the long hours. You're working evenings and weekends. You can show 50 houses to one couple and then they end up buying a for sale by owner. People think it's a glamorous life and it's absolutely, positively not. It's 24-7. Talk about when you realized that you wanted to become a real estate agent. I realized I was really good at it. Good in the sense that it's all about connecting with people, which is exactly what I had done in my previous roles. 
You're not selling something. You're understanding what people want. You're understanding what their needs are. Why is it important to you to have a real estate office in a Des Moines neighborhood? I want to be the person that advocates for why people should live in Des Moines, why you should go to Des Moines Public Schools. There's so much more to offer in these neighborhoods. I wanted to be in the heart of Des Moines. I wanted walkability. I want my clients and other agents to go to Slow Down Coffee Company for coffee. Go eat at Chuck's. Go shop at Des Moines Mercantile. Everybody in this neighborhood is so incredible and nice. I just love the idea that this space can bring more people here to experience that. Talk about your vision for this office. I didn't want traditional office space here where you get top producers in their own offices. I want this to be a complete collaboration space. Total think tank environment. I really truly believe we can be more successful together. We can make each other better by collaborating together. I want this to be a space that a realtor can come in that maybe doesn't have as much experience. I know for me, I felt very isolated in the real estate world. If it wasn't for my mom, there was nobody sitting me down to say, here's all the things you're going to learn. All that you learn, you cannot learn in a book. You have to experience it. It's all about problem solving and being solution oriented. I realized there was a lack of that in other offices because people, at least in my experience, tend to be more isolated and private with what's going on. I wanted to create this open space where everybody can bounce ideas off of each other. Describe the real estate agent who will find working out of this office appealing. They are the agents who are working in central Des Moines. They are familiar with older neighborhoods. They're familiar with the process of selling older homes. I think the agents that are working out of here are going to have clients that are also pretty invested in the Des Moines metro area. What have you learned from your mom that you're applying to your new situation? What my team and I have learned from my mom is that this business is 100% relationship focused. You do not ever work for a paycheck. The money that is made is irrelevant. It's about taking care of your clients, making sure that they are zealously advocated for, making it about a relationship that you're not just going to sell them one house, you're going to sell them many homes throughout their lifetime. Where do you see this office in five years? I hope that in five years, we've run out of space, that we have so many agents who want to be a part of this community and this office that we have to buy another building to renovate to make room for them. Sarah Hopkins at a glance, hometown, Des Moines, family. Husband, Mark Hopkins, and two children, Pippa, 10, and Alfie, 8. Education, bachelor's degree in mass communication in 2006 from Grandview University. Age, 38. Work background. Worked in the United Kingdom for several years after graduating from college as a senior account executive for TouchBase magazine. Joined Berkshire Hathaway Home Services in 2011 
working there until 2017 when she moved to Remax Concepts. In 2020, joined Remax Precision. Contact Sarah, S-A-R-A, at S-A-R-A-H-O-P-K-I-N-S-R-E-A-L-T-O-R. That's Sarah Hopkins Realtor. Our next story, West Des Moines-based Recoup seeks to fill gaps in disaster insurance coverage by Joe Gardiaz. With a goal of making insurance simpler to use, West Des Moines entrepreneur Darren Wood has launched Recoup Disaster Insurance a product that will pay out lump sum insurance settlements to homeowners or renters whose residence sustains damage from many types of natural disasters. The supplemental insurance product is designed to reduce the out-of-pocket financial burden in recovering from disaster losses for those who already have property casualty coverage. Recoup's policies pledge to pay a cash benefit of up to $25,000 within an estimated 24 to 48 hours once an area has been included in a federal or state-declared disaster area. Wood, an insurance consultant who has specialized in voluntary insurance programs for employers, has been developing the product over the past two years with several strategic partner companies under the umbrella of his company, Strategic Partner. Strategic Product Partners, LLC. The seeds of the business was sown for Wood through his professional experience dealing with the widespread devastation caused by Hurricane Sandy on the East Coast in 2012. The number of disasters per year has more than doubled from the 1990s to the 2010s, and in 2020 alone there were 22 natural disasters, with losses exceeding $1 billion each, Wood noted. These realities, on top of the fact that most American homeowners are underinsured by 20% of their home's value, paved the way for Recoup to step in as a safety net, he said. The supplemental coverage includes hurricane and seawater storm surge, wildfire, tornado, earthquake, gas explosion, and winter or dust storm coverage. At a time when families are financially vulnerable, Recoup lessens the financial burden with affordable policies and expedited payments, Wood said. We created Recoup to be different and ensure that no individual or family experiences financial ruin due to a naturally occurring event beyond their control. The covered property must have sustained more than $1,000 in actual damages from a declared natural disaster. The policies don't put any restrictions on how policyholders spend their payouts, so it could be used on any unexpected expenses, including covering the deductible on a traditional homeowner's policy. Among Recoup's strategic partners is Professional Solutions Insurance Company, a subsidiary of NCMIC Group. The strategic partnership is the third for PSIC in the past several years, said James West, Professional Solutions Vice President of Corporate Business Development. 
While malpractice coverage will always remain the company's core product, expanding into new niche product partnerships has been a focus. With Mike McCoy coming on board a few years ago as CEO, he challenged all of us to think a little bigger, West said. So one of the challenges we've taken on is asking, are there other areas that grow and diversify your risk? In regards to recoup, we're excited, he said, noting that it's the only multi-peril supplemental disaster coverage he know of he knows of in the market. We're basically bringing together a team of experts, which really puts us in the best position in the market. It just felt like a very natural synergy with them, he said. Recoup is currently available in 38 states, including Iowa, and Wood anticipates receiving regulatory approval in all 50 states within the next year. Here's a Q&A with Wood with more information about the company. What were some of the hurdles that you had to overcome in developing this product? Most homeowners insurance policies leave gaps in coverage, which is why Recoup was created, to pick up where insurance stops, so consumers can bounce back faster after a disaster. Recoup is the first and only multi-peril disaster insurance product that pays a lump sum cash benefit up to $25,000 after a natural disaster. Creating an entirely new product in a highly regulated industry like insurance was the biggest pain point we had to overcome. It took time and patience to bring together the right resources and backing to create a product that would achieve all that we wanted to provide to consumers. Briefly tell me about your partner companies in this venture and the role that each plays. We're lucky to be led by a team of insurance industry experts and backed by world-class business partners. We have a network of incredible strategic partners that have developed, that have helped take Recoup from a seedling of an idea to an accessible consumer benefit. We're backed by the biggest reinsurance leaders in the industry, between Swiss Re and Munich Re, as well as our carrier, Professional Solutions Insurance Company so our customers know their money will be there when they need it. Sedgwick is our claims administrator, and we partner with Business Solver for Benefits Administration, which gives us access to powerful tools and solutions to administer our policies and process claims effectively and efficiently. How are you and your partners funding this venture? Have you obtained angel or venture capital? Recoup's initial seed funding has come from a combination of its founders and angel investors. Most recently, we are closing a Series A with current investors just under $2 million, and with our expected growth rate, our Series B is expected to be in the $5 to $10 million range. What's the estimated market size of this insurance niche for gap disaster coverage? We see the market as nearly everywhere and for everyone. Natural disasters are inevitable, and with FEMA reporting that 80% of U.S. counties have experienced a weather-related disaster in the last five years, we know the risk is real. Living in denial about those risks is costly, which is why Recoup was created, to cover the gaps and pick up where insurance stops. 
When was your initial launch, and have there been any covered disasters yet in which you've paid out claims? We started with a soft launch earlier this year and are currently activating our go-to-market strategy as we speak. For context, in 2021 alone, 21 federally declared disasters would have been covered by Recoup, so long as the individual met all claims requirements. And this doesn't consider state-declared disasters, which are also covered by Recoup, which just highlights the magnitude of the risk everyday consumers face with natural disasters. What market do you see for employers offering this as a benefit? Are you making it available to employers in the states you're in now? With our current distribution plan, we're focused on actively rolling out this product offering to employee benefit brokers, and we'll continue to grow over time through other market categories. Recoup is currently available in 37 states. We're actively working on adding new states and policies in the future, and we'll be in all 50 states very soon. Any plans to bring this to the commercial market for small business coverage? Our focus right now is on helping as many people as possible by ensuring that Recoup is accessible to them, building awareness around our product, and creating understanding of how it can help protect, protect their financial future. We know that the average household savings in the U.S. is just $3,800, and 60% of Americans have no emergency fund. Too many people face financial ruin in the wake of a natural disaster, and that's just not okay. We know this risk and concern extends to other categories and markets, so it's something we're mindful of as we continue to roll out recoup across the country or explore international opportunities. In a related sidebar, company has partially remote, super lean staff. Based in a West Glen office space in West Des Moines, Recoup Disaster Insurance is the doing business as name of Strategic Product Partners, LLC, an Iowa limited liability company. Led by Des Moines native Darren Wood, who splits his time between residences in Franklin, Tennessee and Greater Des Moines, the company currently has a, quote, super lean staff of five two of whom are based locally. Most recently, the company brought on a chief operations officer who works from the Twin Cities, said Alex Sabig, Recoup's chief marketing officer who lives near San Diego. Staffing could easily double within the next year, with the ability to hire in Greater Des Moines or anywhere in the country, Sabig said. I wish I had a crystal ball, she said. The faster we roll out distribution, the faster we'll grow. A lot of staffing support is coming to the table through third parties. After recently moving to an oceanfront property, Sabig said she now personally owns a recoup policy. After living in California for the past year and a half, she said, I've watched many people lose their homes due to disasters. You can visit the company's website at www.recoopinsurance.com. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, December 10th, 2021. 
I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Today you can take a train in a tunnel beneath the English Channel called the Channel from London to Paris in two hours. But half a million years ago, the English Channel didn't exist. Britain was attached to Europe. At that time, Earth alternated between glacial and interglacial periods, as it still does today. During glacial periods, some of Earth's water is held in vast glaciers on top of continents rather than in oceans, which causes ocean levels to drop hundreds of feet. Towards the end of one of these glacials, as the ice sheet started to melt, an enormous lake formed in the North Sea, dammed in the north by a massive wall of ice and in the south by a rock land bridge. Eventually, water levels rose so high that the lake began pouring over the British land bridge in gargantuan waterfalls. Engineers planning the path of the channel discovered this. Using seismic studies, they found huge, deep pits in the seafloor filled with rubble and sediment and designed the channel to avoid them. Eventually, scientists collected enough data to recognize the pits as plunge pools that those giant waterfalls would have made from millions of tons of water pounding down on the seafloor over centuries. The waterfalls began to erode the land bridge, but it held until a couple of glacial and interglacial cycles later Another flood finished the job. The channel formed, causing a natural Brexit thousands of years ago. I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.